Hi, my name's Zach, and I'm an addict. Hi, Zach. <clears throat> the book of Acts, uh, chapter 4, verse 31, it says, And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God boldly. Please pray with me. Father, um, you're here. You have a vast universe, and you have chosen to be here in our gym. And Father, we know that. We know that you're here. But I pray that we would, we would really feel your presence today. That we would know, we would know in the depths of our being that you are here. You know each one of us in this room. You went to great effort to design us and create us, and you know everything about us. You know how the fall has wrecked us. You know what we come bringing this morning, the shame, the guilt. You know the marriages that are falling apart. You know the people that don't have jobs. You know all the stress that is in this room. And Father, I'm asking you to please humble yourself and come and meet us in those places today. Father, I'm asking you to do that which you've done throughout all of human history, and that is to set your people free. I pray that today would be a day of liberation. And, And Father, you know me, and you know my stuff, and you know all the things that the people in this room don't know. And you still love me. And and let me believe that today as I speak. Let me believe that you really do love me. That you really know me and that you really loved me. And Father, it feels ridiculous to me that I am speaking here. But I love that you love to tell ridiculous stories. So I put myself here. I, I submit to you, Father. I use this broken center to communicate to your people. Let it be you. I want you to speak. And I ask all of this in the name of my rescuer, of my big brother, of my atonement, of my God, Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm so excited to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm excited about what God has for us. I'm also a little bit nervous uh, because this is my first time preaching ever. And, but I know that I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But that's how I feel right now. I feel like that. And I kind of wish that I had just written it all down so that I could read it. Because today's a big day. It's a, it's a big day um, for me, for those of you who are visiting, I think Jack said something in the announcements, but this isn't my normal gig. I'm the youth guy. I, this is my first time getting to speak to the grown-ups, and, um, and so it's a big deal. Um, also, in, in, in kind of watching the baptism, um, it's a big deal also because I've been part of this church for 20, almost 20 years. Um, and so I know we didn't take this vow today because they're going to Texas, but 
when we take that vow that we're going to come alongside these kids uh, and help these parents and raising them up to fear the Lord, you all have done that with me. So it's a big day. It's because of your mentoring me, you teaching me, you being on missions trips with me. All of that has led to me being right here this morning. So it's a big day for you. Uh, it's also a big day because when I first moved here from Alabama in fifth grade, um, that's the first time I remember fantasizing, if that's the right word, uh, about preaching. I kind of started, about fifth or sixth grade, started thinking, you know, maybe one day I'm going to be a preacher. Now, from the time I was three or four, I had my mind set on being famous. I was going to be a famous movie director. I was going to be a famous actor. And if you had met me as a five-year-old, you would have been astonished at my commitment to the craft. Um, I was constantly working on achieving that goal. But then I moved here, and I started going to school at Orangewood Christian School, and I started attending church here, um, and I started thinking, Maybe one day I'll be a preacher. Now, I always wanted to be famous still, so that dream didn't go away. It was just like these two competing dreams. Uh, I hate mowing the grass. If you come to my house, I have a yard that's about the size of this circle right here. And you will notice that unless it's knee length, uh, it's not cut. And the only reason it's cut thin is because my wife says, Zach, please, please, please cut it. Otherwise, I would not cut the grass. I hate it. So as a kid... How I would pass time when I'd mow the grass is I'd go to these fantasy worlds, and most of the time I would have fake conversations, fake conversations with David Letterman, and he would be interviewing me about my latest summer blockbuster, and we were really funny together and witty. You know, some people don't work with him. We were great. You would have loved <laughs> to have seen us. Um, so sometimes I would have these fake interviews with David Letterman, and then sometimes I would preach. Um, so today's a big deal. Uh, because I'm getting to fulfill a childhood dream. But I really hope that's not what, that's all this is. Uh, ever since Jeff asked me if I would preach, I've been really praying that I don't want it to be about my first sermon. Um, and crazy, this is stressful. This is the most stressful thing I've ever done. And, and I have so much more respect for Jeff because I see how it can become all about you. But I don't want that this morning. Um, I really want what that church in Acts had. I want this place to be shaken, and I want us to all be filled with the Holy Spirit, and I want us to speak the Word of God boldly. And so with that being said, that can only happen if I submit to God's Word. So let's read that together. We're going to be looking at 1 John. It's towards the back of your Bible. First John, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and declare to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out of the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin." If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make Him out to be a liar and His word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if you do sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word for us, Orangewood, today, December 27th, 2009. As I've, as I've spent a lot of time reading this text, um, I think, Orangewood, we, we might be walking in darkness. And the reason I think that is because we're addicts. Um, we all love something too much. We've all experienced passion gone awry. And if you don't think you struggle with addiction, my guess is, is you're more addicted than I am. Gerald May, in his book, Addictions and Grace, starts it off by saying, to be alive is to be addicted, and to be addicted is to stand in the need of grace. To be alive is to be addicted, and to be addicted is to stand in the need of grace. He goes on in that book to talk about the um, alcoholics and the drug addicts, and he says, it's by looking at these people's lives played out on an extreme scale that we see the drama that happens in every single human, although often more subtly and more covertly. One of my heroes, Sharon Hirsch, who I'm going to talk about a couple times this morning, wrote a book called The Last Addiction. Sharon is a woman who loves Jesus, and she's an alcoholic, and she's a professor at RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary. And in her book, The Last Addiction, she describes addiction as worship. She says it's giving yourself over your heart and your soul over to something that you think will ease your pain and provide an outlet for your fury at not being in control. Addiction is worship. When you put your trust, your heart, your soul into something that you believe will ease your pain and provide an outlet for your fury at not being in control. I hate not being in control. It's hard to live in this world. It's hard. It, it, it drives me crazy that I live in a world where I get hurt and I get rejected and I get used and I feel lonely. I don't like that I can't control that. And I'm guessing you don't too. So what do we often do with that fury that we have at being out of control? It usually leads to addiction. Now, you might think that word is harsh. Um, we could substitute the word idolatry. Uh, that's kind of the word that's in the Bible a bunch, uh, but addiction and addict is, is the same thing, and it's more current to the way we think and talk. So I'm going to stick with addict. But I think we like darkness. I think we choose to walk in darkness um, because we're addicts. And if you read any book on addiction, whether it's by a Christian author or not, they all talk about the addict's affinity for darkness. They love the darkness because it's only in the darkness that that addiction 
can survive. It's only in the darkness that that addiction can ease their pain. Because addiction does. The stuff we run to, we run to it because it works. Whenever we are feeling out of control, we go to something that we know will fix our pain, at least temporarily. And the addict knows that, and they go into hiding with it, because the minute that's exposed to the light, it loses its ability to ease our pain. And so then we have to look for an even greater addiction. And maybe a better way to look at this is if you, if you don't think you're an addict, is to look at whether or not you want what's offered in the light. What does God tell us is offered in the light? What does he tell us through the disciple whom Jesus loves, John, tell us is offered in the light? He says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we will have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, will purify us from all sins. I don't think we want that. At least I don't want that. I don't really want fellowship with people. I did lots of research for this. So just know, I'm very well researched up here. And one of the sources that I went to for this um, was the great theologian Ellen DeGeneres. Um, <laughs> in her, one of her HBO comedy specials, she talks about, do people really want to be in relationship with each other? Do people really want true fellowship with each other? And she concludes that, no, we do not. We're too busy. Um, she says, as soon as we begin to have a meaningful conversation with someone, you know someone's cell phone's going to go off. And she goes on and on and on. I will spare you that because I'm not Ellen DeGeneres. But she says that's going to happen. And then she says, you know, when we're walking past each other, we say, hi, how are you? But we don't really care. We don't really want to know how they are. We just want a good, a fine, and keep moving. And if someone says, pretty good, then we're pretty good. Oh, really? What's wrong? Something happened? I don't have time. I don't. You know, we don't really want relationships with each other. Now, she says it's because of busyness. I think she's right, but I think it's deeper than that. I think we use busyness as a way to keep ourselves from being known by each other. Yesterday, I got a little stressed out because I came here to practice, and an hour and 40 minutes later, I was done. Um, and that's not going to happen today, I promise. It's not. But again, I have more sympathy for Jeff. I think all of you should have to come and, and do this so that you know what it's like. Um, but I, and I remember telling my parents, I said, Mom, Dad, my, my sermon was an hour and 40 minutes. I think I have two sermons in there. And my dad said, Son, if you, had a hundred, if you had an hour and 40 minutes, you had five sermons in there. So I have done some major cutting this morning. Um, but yesterday, as I was trying to cut, God kept adding stuff. He kept bringing things to mind. Uh, and one of the people he brought to mind was um, dear brother Scott Alexander. And um, many of you know Scott. Um, he went to this church for a long time. When I, when I look out there and tell y'all um, that I have been ministered by this church, Scott was a huge part of that. He was a huge mentor in my life as a teenager growing up. 
And yesterday I was thinking about when Scott came and spoke to us two years ago. I think it was about two years ago. And Scott had been at this church, like I said, for a long time. He had been an elder. He had left the church to go be part of a church plant. But when he came back to talk to us about his cancer um, and, and what he had discovered through that suffering, the thing that stood out to me was he said, and Orangewood, I can share with you all about my suffering, and you're really great at coming around people who have gone through tragic circumstances. You are incredible at that. You are a family that loves each other in tragedy. But when I was here... I cannot tell you about what was going on in my marriage. I cannot tell you what was going on with my kids. If you came to Scott's funeral, this whole place was full. He had so many friends and all, from all different walks of life, all different types of people. He was a very social man, but yet when he walked into this place, he felt extremely lonely. He felt like he needed to hide and he chose to walk in darkness. And I think Scott would be the first one to say that it's as much his fault as it is ours. Because Scott didn't want to have to take that first step back when he was a member here. And I don't either. Um, when I first got asked to, to preach this Sunday, this text came to mind right away. And I, and I began thinking about what it means to walk in darkness and in hiding and what it means to walk in the light. And, and I started getting really excited because then I started thinking about addiction. And I was like, you know what I'm going to do? And this is how I envisioned this sermon going. Is I was going to stand up and I was going to say, hi, my name is Zach. Just like I did. And say, and I'm addicted to... And then I was going to go down a list of everything that I was addicted to. Every place where I go to ease my pain. Every place that I use as an outlet for my fury at not being in control. And I remember praying. I remember getting so excited and thinking, this is going to be great. And, and, and Father, okay, I want you for the next few weeks to just reveal to me all my stuff. All the things that I'm doing that are sinful. All my shame. Everything. I want to know it all so that I can stand up at Orangewood and I can tell it all. Obviously, I did not do that. And I do think the Holy Spirit intervened and kept me from doing that, but I don't think he did it because that's not what he wants for me. I think he's just more patient than I am. I think he knows that I'm not ready to do that, and you're probably not ready to hear me do that. Because if I were to do that, we would have true fellowship. Because you would know me. So I don't think that we want what's offered in the light. We prefer the darkness. We don't really want to know each other. January 9th, 2007, I became a Christian. You say, what? January 9th, 2007, I became a Christian. I know if you're doing math, you're thinking, well, that was about three years ago, and Zach's been our youth pastor for about three years, and surely the elders would not have hired someone to mentor our teenagers who has only known Jesus a few little weeks. They did. Um, 
And you're also thinking, wait a second, you just talked about how you grew up in this church and, and how we mentored you and how we raised you in, in the fear of the Lord, and you did. And I'm not saying that if I had died as a teenager, I would be burning in hell right now because I don't think so. I know, actually, I, don't, I know I, I wouldn't be because I know I'm his, and I know he was doing a work in me. But on January 9th, 2007, was the first time I remember actually surrendering to Jesus. I was in seminary. I had been in seminary for a year. Um, and I was taking a week-long class. Seminary, they take an entire semester's worth of work and they pour it into one week. And so I was in class from 8 in the morning till 5 at night. And this class I was taking was on addictions. It was taught by Sharon Hirsch. And the first day of class, I was completely disrupted. My whole world turned upside down. I didn't know what was right or wrong. I felt like a complete phony, a fraud. I felt like my guts had been ripped, my stomach had been ripped open, my guts had spilled out. I, I was a huge mess. I remember coming home from that day of classes and I just put my hand in Kelly's face, which is not a nice thing to do. I do not recommend it. But I put my hand in Kelly's face and, and I said, I don't want to talk. I just want to go to bed. And why I was so distraught why I was so messed up was I was really excited about that class. I thought, this is going to be fascinating to learn about this. I would love to know what it's like for an addict. I'd like to know how an addict thinks. Because then maybe one day I can go and I can be their rescuer. And I can help those addicts break into the light. And within an hour of sitting in that class, I realized that was me. I saw, maybe I'm not an alcoholic, and that's kind of what she was talking about the first day, but in that, I saw myself. I saw the way they thought was the same way I thought. I saw that the way they try to escape their pain, how they, how they justify it in their mind is the same way I do it. The way they manipulate relationships to protect themselves, that was me. And so all of a sudden, I'm sitting in this class that I was so excited about learning how to be a rescuer and finding out that I'm the one who needed to be rescued. So needless to say, day two was awful. I remember just going into class thinking, like, this stinks. Um, and, and I was sitting there, and it was lunch break. And a lot of the guys were going out to lunch together, and I said no because I was so raw. And I thought, who knows what I'll confess to them. I'm not, I'm not about <laughs> to go in this state. And so I went to lunch by myself. And you're not supposed to do this, or people tell you not to do it, but I, uh, I took my Bible because I didn't know what else to do, and I closed my eyes and I opened it. And then I put my finger down. <laughs> and I said, God, speak. And my, my finger landed midway through a verse. So I, I don't know what you do with that, but I chose to just remove my finger and start on the word that my finger was covering. And the verse was Isaiah 8, verse 13b. <laughs> and the verse said, Let God be your fear. Let him alone be your dread. That shocked me. Because God caught me. Out of all the verses in the entire Bible, he exposed one of my greatest addictions, and that is, is that I am terrified of you all. So much of my life, I have strived and tried to be acceptable to you. I don't just want you to like me. 
I want you to think I'm great. I want you to think I need that guy. Just like the reason I went to the addictions class thinking I want to be a rescuer, I want you to think I need Zach. He is the best. And because of that, I don't like to tell you real things. Let me tell you, growing up feeling like that is really lonely. And I'm sure many of you feel that way too, because if you grew up in the church, it's probably how you felt. After spending some time looking at that verse and just in shock that God would really speak because I was reformed and, and God doesn't do that. And so um, just after the shock of that wore off, I wrote two sentences. First sentence said, I must tell my story boldly and without regard to what others might think. It was that moment that I first took that baby step into the light. Uh, and it is a baby step. And I, I tell my story more boldly today than I would have three years ago. But I'm still really scared. And I really thought I had knocked a lot of this addiction. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you know sometimes I write offensive Facebook statuses. And I don't mean to, but there's just something in me that just wants to make sure that I'm not worried about what you think. Um, but preparing for this sermon, uh, the amount of fear that came up in me just showed me that I am still addicted to that. God still isn't my only fear. He's not my only dread. I am fearful of you. The second sentence I wrote was prepare Kelly's heart. You see, if we start walking in the light, if I were to really tell my story boldly, I would break Kelly's heart. Because I have done so much that is selfish, that would hurt her, and she would cry. And if you, if we all in here told all the stuff that we've done, if we share all that, there would be weeping and wailing in this room. But again, we don't want, we don't want that. We don't want true fellowship. We don't want this to be a place of tears. One of the commentaries I was reading in preparation for this um, said that John was a pastor and he loved his people. And John was writing to a church that he loved a lot. And it was a church full of Christians like you and me. But these Christians, the reason he was writing was because these Christians wanted a Christianity without tears. I think that might be us too. You say, well, Zach, that's such a bummer. If we come in here and we know every Sunday we're going to come in here and we're just going to cry, where, where's, the, where's the joy in that? Well, let me tell you, in that addictions class, I had to go to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. And I left that meeting with this thought. Wow. That was church. That was real fellowship. And there was lots of tears. 
I, I heard a man who had been sober for several years say that he had just fallen off the wagon that week and he had done something horrible to his wife. And there was wailing in that room. But you know what? When I left there, I felt like I had really experienced something. I felt like I knew the people that I was in that room with and I felt joy. I don't understand it, but I did. So, if you're an addict, you don't want fellowship with one another. The other thing you don't want is the blood of Jesus to purify you from all your sins. We say we want that, but I don't know if we really do. Because if the blood of Jesus is going to purify us from all our sins, then His blood is going to be on our hands. And with His blood on our hands, we have no bargaining chips. We have no control over Him. So worship team makes its way up to the stage um, as Kyle makes his way up for the last time. Yeah, I, I wish y'all had gotten to know Kyle. I know a lot of you didn't. I love Kyle. And, and he is my brother. And Kyle, I'm going to miss you a whole lot. Um, and part of the reason I said yes to this um, was because I felt like God wanted me to. And also because I knew it was going to be Kyle's last sermon. And I, I mean, last service, and I wanted to be part of it. Um, but I want to end with just one story. And it's a story that John, the man who wrote to his church to stop walking in darkness, to walk in the light, a story that he wrote in his gospel account of Jesus. Jesus, he said, was teaching early one morning. And there was a crowd already around him because people loved to hear Jesus teach. They loved to hear him share God's word. Imagine Imagine if we had Jesus teaching. Hopefully we do, actually. But Jesus is teaching. And an angry mob of religious leaders comes marching towards him. This mob of religious leaders were Pharisees. Pharisees were men who had devoted their entire life to God's word. To understanding God's word, to following God's word to helping other people understand and follow God's Word. To be a Pharisee, you had to memorize the entire Old Testament. That's a lot of memorization. That's a commitment to God's Word. So these Pharisees, these religious men, came storming to Jesus and threw down at Jesus' feet a woman. Now the woman was probably barely clothed, if at all. Maybe she got to grab a blanket. But she's lying there in front of Jesus. And the religious men, these Pharisees said to him, Teacher, this woman we caught in the very act of adultery. According to the law of Moses, such women are to be stoned. Now I, want, I know you've heard this story. It's a popular story. But I want you to think about this for a second. These religious men caught... This woman in the act of adultery. They didn't just hear about it. It wasn't a rumor. These men actually stormed in and caught her. 
Can you imagine the shame she felt? Imagine if whatever it is you go to to ease your pain, if someone walked in and caught you, and not only that, a group of godly men walked in and caught you and then dragged you out into the light. Imagine if right now our elders came storming through this room and threw a half-naked woman down right here. How would you feel? That, that's what happened. And Jesus didn't say anything at first, which is really awkward because that would be a, a very awkward silence. Uh, it says that he went down in the sand and wrote something. And for some reason, God doesn't want us to know what he wrote because it doesn't say. There are lots of people who have speculated, but we don't know. But he wrote something, and then he looked up at those men, and he said to them, Whichever one of you is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And it says he bent back down and wrote something else. And one by one, the men started dropping their stones. They had been caught. They, like the adulterous woman, had been caught in their sin, in their shame, in their addictions. And as they dropped their stones, they turned and walked away. These were good men. These were men who knew the Bible a lot better than we do. These are men who devoted their whole lives to following God. And when they turned away, I'm sure they felt guilty. I'm sure they felt shame. I'm sure that they were repentant. I'm sure they immediately went and offered whatever sacrifice they were supposed to offer to pay for their sins. And I bet they made a New Year's resolution that this year, I'm not going to do that again. This year, I'm going to do whatever it takes to not do that again. I'm going to set whatever boundaries I need to do. I'm going to white-knuckle it if I have to. I am not going to make that mistake again. They wanted to fix themselves because they wanted to be acceptable in God's sight because of what they do for Him. But what if they had stayed? What if they had chosen when they dropped their rocks to just stand there? Then they would have seen the only one in that group who was without sin say to the woman lying there, completely in shame, They would have heard him say, probably with tears in his eyes, because he knew that to say what he's about to say, he would have to become this woman's advocate. And that meant he would have to become her atoning sacrifice. And so with tears in his eyes, because he knew that that meant he was going to be rejected by those he had loved, he knew that meant that he was going to stand trial, a mockery of a trial, that he knew that he was going to be beaten, and humiliated, he knew that he was going to die a painful, excruciating death. So those, he knows all that, and these tears are coming down his face. And then he looks at her, and he sees her sin. He sees that act with which she had just been caught, and he has to say, I'm going to become that. I'm going to become that filthy, shameful act. I'm going to completely 
hide myself in the darkness. So knowing all that, Jesus pushed her face up, because I'm sure she didn't look up from the ground, and said to her, nor do I condemn you. Nor do I condemn you. Family, if we really believed that, I know we all know it. I haven't said anything profound that you haven't already heard before. We know that. We know that he does not condemn us. We know that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. But do we really believe it? Because I would say if we really believed it, we would want to walk more boldly in the light. We would want to have fellowship with one another. And we would rejoice more boldly in our atoning sacrifice. I really believe if, if we heard Jesus say to us, nor do I condemn you, we wouldn't need 12-step programs. We wouldn't need boundaries. We wouldn't need uh, accountability partners. If we really heard Jesus say, nor do I condemn you, then all he would need to say is go and leave your life of sin. That day that I became a Christian and I was reading about God and Him being my only fear, you know what came back to mind? The things that you had taught me. You had taught me that God loves me. You had taught me that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. I remembered something Jeff always said to me. Jeff always looked at me and said, Zach, God loves you enough to send his son to die for your sins. So now all you have to do is fall in love with Jesus and you can do whatever you want. And he's right. And I'm so glad it's all about grace. Amen. Amen.